I have seen reports of private equities death in 1999, the founding partner and executive chairman of TPG, and one of those rare investors who has been shaping the private equity industry since its inception. When you look at the seminal moments in the industry's history, you'll often find that Jim was there as new ground was broken, as he calls it, breaking the tablets. All of the industry conventions at the time we entered it are absolutely passe today. And that has continued over the years. Essentially, whatever the tablets are, there are moments you have to break them and innovate. We're especially fortunate to have Jim on the show today when deal activity is down and growth has stalled out. He argues these are precisely the moments when the industry reinvents itself. Somehow the industry keeps growing and it has more survival power than people think. Today on Dry Powder, I'll ask Jim how he challenges the industry's conventions and which conventions he thinks are about to break. I'm Hugh MacArthur, Chairman of Bain's Global Private Equity Practice, and this is Dry Powder. Jim, it's a real pleasure having you on Dry Powder. Really appreciate you stopping by the show today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, Jim, you and I had a chat, I think it was in early August, and you expressed some interest in collaborating on a 30-year longitudinal history of the private equity industry. What gave you the idea to pursue that? Hugh, across many years, you and I have been involved in the industry. There have been moments where people have called into question the future of the private equity industry, and in fact, its effectiveness. And over the past year, we've entered one of those moments, fundraising down, deal activity down, and press reports questioning the ability of private equity to continue to deliver its historical performance. I've been through probably four or five of those cycles, yet I realized as that was occurring that most of the people in my firm really hadn't seen that moment before. So I really thought it was helpful both for our firm and for our LPs to look back over the arc of the industry and at this moment, see what we can learn from the journey we've traveled. Lessons have repeated themselves and also what changes may be dawning on the horizon. And why did you think a practitioner's voice was needed at this particular time? When I started in the industry, there was no industry data. We actually had to create our own industry sizing when we were considering how to describe the industry. Today, 35 years later, there's consultants, there's professors, there's tons of people talking about the industry. But it struck me that one of the voices that has gotten drowned out is there's very few practitioners talking about the industry generally itself. It's almost as if we were watching Monday Night Football and they forgot to invite into the booth anyone who had actually played the game. So, and I mean this in the most flattering way, we could kind of consider you, given your roots in the industry at the very earliest times, almost as a Forrest Gump kind of figure, having been there at the very start and all the way through to today. Yeah, I uh, just by chance, I happen to be there at a lot of the moments in the industry's development. And there's a few times I think that you see an industry of the scale of private equity where some of the earliest practitioners are still active. So for me, when I joined Lehman Brothers in 1982, one of my first projects was to work with Westray on a buyout. And buyout was a new idea. And we were doing handwritten projections 
like five-year projections on 11 by 17 paper. Mm -hmm. I walked into my partner and said, hey, I, I was an engineer at Dartmouth. I've done some programming. What if we do it on a computer? It was a radical idea. And I did what I think was the first buyout model, certainly at Lehman Brothers, maybe at Wall Street. And so I was there at that moment. I was there later when Drexel emerged in their first big deal where I was representing Boone Pickens when he tried to take over Gulf Oil. I was there in the family investment era, uh, and I was there as the industry began to go to the institutional path in the 90s. Uh, so in some ways, the arc of private equity has been the arc of my career. And uh, you know, shame on me if there's not some perspective from having traveled that journey. Absolutely. But Jim, let's go back to the founding days of TPG. You just arrived in Fort Worth, Texas. And from what I understand, you literally are seeing tumbleweeds coming down the street. Did you have any inkling of what you were getting into? We had no idea. The industry had no name. Private equity didn't really even occur as a name until the late 90s. It was called buyouts. It was called raiders. It was an unformed event. And I think it's important to just take a moment and think about those early days. Because one of the lessons of the last 30 years is that early trends tend to echo for a long time. So a, a bit on the prehistory of that moment, Hugh. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, private equity has been around a long time. If you go back and read the biographies of uh, J.P. Morgan or Rockefeller, they were doing private equity. Mm -hmm. uh, they were investing privately in companies. But the industry began to form up in the 70s with a few firms, Warburg, Pincus, uh, for example, KKR, Forsman Little. These were small firms, $40 million funds, tiny. And another vein of the industry, there were a few families, the Bass family, the Pritzker's family, the Rails brothers, who were also doing individual innovative investing. The next step to the industry really came when junk bonds put an extra piece of the capital structure together. And when that happened, there was a whole nother set of firms that suddenly got started. Leonard Green and partners, Hellman and Friedman. Bain Capital, uh, to, to name a few, uh, the beginning of Blackstone and Apollo, all in that era on the back of it. And at the same time, as you point out, I arrived in Fort Worth, Texas in 1986. And through the back half of the 80s, the industry really took off in an interesting way till it hit the next seminal event, which was really the RJR Nabisco deal. That deal really echoes loud in the history of private equity the general public began to see the scale of what might be done in this industry. And Hugh, to give you the, a sense of it, RGR and Nabisco in today's dollars would be an $800 billion deal. So this was a take private of massive scale in its era. So all of that was the prehistory of this business. Why do I say it's important today? Because if you look at the gene pools of this industry, if you trace, for example, Lehman Brothers, what was going on at Lehman Brothers. It gave rise to BlackRock, Blackstone, and almost a trillion and a half of private equity. You can see that gene pool right through. And actually, if you go back to Fort Worth, Texas, one of the most important gene pools, and you know this from your work, is coming out of the Bass family. Why is that? It echoes over time. And then Drexel created Apollo and, and really the private credit industry over time in a way that has echoed through 30 years. And so today, as we sit at this moment in the industry, one of the questions that I'm asking myself is, what are the things we're doing today that will echo for the next 30? Because history tells us that the moves you make in this industry, the human capital realizations of expertise play out 
over long periods of time. I like the way you put that, Jim, in terms of past 30 years and next 30 years, because what I'm hearing is that at the heart of your story, we're really talking about an industry, the private equity industry, that no one ever imagined would become a multi-trillion dollar global business. You, you talked about its very humble beginnings, almost accidental beginnings, one could say. Is it really mature at this point and is it stabilized? Or when you think next 30, do you think the next 30 years are going to require just as much disruption as the last 30? Look at the last 30 would suggest the next 30 is going to continue to be very interesting. So let, let's go back and talk about those lessons of the last 30. The first point is the absolute surprise of size. It started with some very small deal shops, no idea of succession, no idea of permanence, no idea of permanent capital. And I remember in about 1994 at our first investors conference, the entire private equity industry was about $50 billion. Mm -hmm. And there was a very strong belief that there was too much money in private equity. And again, in 2000 and hundred billion, and again, it, like over and over again, people have said this industry is, you know, a cottage industry and it can't get uh, larger. And yet somewhere along the way, for reasons we can discuss, it's continued to surprise. So when you think about the early days, Jim, what were the rules of the game back then in private equity? <laughs> Tell me about this cottage industry and how it got going and what the rules really were. Yeah, for those of us who've been around for a long time, one of the huge surprises in the industry has been whatever the rules are, you're well suited to actually question them and occasionally break them. This is an industry that in some ways is structurally designed to tamp down innovation because you're raising money to deploy over a long period of time in a marketplace that LPs are betting on persistency. So the best way to raise money is to say that five years ago, I did this thing or I did this type of deal. And if you give me money, I will do exactly the same things the same way. Now that is a very good way to raise money. Those of us who are active in the markets know it's not a very good way to invest. So over the years, what has surprised me is the general industry beliefs as to how the industry worked have actually radically changed. And let me, let me give you an example of that. So when we uh, went to raise TPG1, we were moving from a family investment environment where we never had to raise money. We just wandered down the hall with a creative idea into a world that we had to tell this story of persistence and rules. And we were shocked by what was on the tablets of the industry at this point. I mean, these are things that you uh, did not do. Uh, for example, uh, there was a list of industries you didn't invest in. Among them were any regulated industries or any technology industries. Mm -hmm. We were taking financial risk as an industry. We weren't taking technological risk or regulatory risk. Today, the two largest sectors for investing are healthcare and technology. Right. You had to actually go into the areas that no one expected. You were not allowed to have two funds. You had one fund only as a firm. The only firm that had two funds was Forrestman Little, and it had a mezzanine fund that invested only in Forrestman Little deals. Mm -hmm. Today, the average private equity platform probably has four to five different funds, and even mid-size firms have many different funds. LPs never disclosed performance data, never sold their interest. I remember the first time someone did an LP secondary, they, they called for my permission and they apologized that they would actually manage their portfolio. I was sort of, sort of shocked. And it was even on operations. I can show you PPMs that said, we never touch the operations of our companies. You know, we only sit on boards and we only uh, deal with financials. And it was as arcane, uh, he was for me, 
when we went to market TPG One, I showed up with our marketing agent. They told me I absolutely couldn't use slides to present because meetings, no one had ever used slides in a private equity meeting. It had to be eye to eye contact. Mm-hmm. I talked him into letting me use an easel that I would turn over the slides that lasted two meetings. I showed up with a slide book. I said, this way we're doing it. We've used slides ever since. Oh, also fees weren't cross collateralized. 100% of fees went to the GP. So essentially all of the industry conventions at the time we entered it are absolutely passe today. Mm. And that has continued over the years. Essentially, whatever the tablets are, there are moments you have to break them and innovate. And Jim, how did you build a culture back then that was always prepared to break those tablets? You know, it starts, uh, one of the skills I look for in investors is curiosity. It's not only the way things are done, but why aren't they done a different way? So for example, we become one of the largest tech investors, certainly of the generalist funds in private equity. Mm-hmm. And that started when one of our marketing meetings, uh, an LPS is what we didn't do. And we said, we didn't do tech. And I remember walking out of that meeting, looking at David Ponderman and saying, that answer doesn't sound right. We launched a tech practice the next day. So you have to constantly question like, why hasn't anyone done a climate? Why hasn't a fund? Why hasn't anybody done a impact fund. You know, why haven't we were the first to open in China? Like, why hasn't anyone done that? So it begins with curiosity and it begins with an understanding that the key to private equity is next year's ideas, even if your record is built on last year's ideas. Right. So, what are the rules then that are out there, Jim, that are holding back the private equity industry right now? I think there's several. One, one of them is our fee structures. Like, our fee structures are perfectly designed to be unattractive to our clients, particularly to retail clients. And so our structures, which made sense originally, you you did fees on drawn capital because these were small firms that couldn't keep the doors open unless they had fees on committed capital. Mm-hmm. And um, you didn't want to encourage people to do deals. So that structure made sense in 93, but it somehow persisted today. And the J-curve effect makes it hard to invest in our asset class and uh, makes it almost impossible for individuals to invest. So the fee structure is the first thing I think that has to change. The second is the the core partnership structure. If you look at private credit, or if you look at uh, real estate, there's the REIT structure and the BDC structure. These are structures that allow open-ended approach. We have closed-end partnership structures with K-1s that make it really complicated for people to invest in us. So a lot of it has to do with structural issues. And then the other area that I think is something that we're going to have to look at is I don't know if the co-invest regime in our industry can survive and scale in its current form. Mm-hmm. It's become more and more part of the industry fabric, yet how it all fits together is unclear. And there's a huge amount of friction around how this all works. And uh, with intentions being good, I think we need to find better ways to uh, express what's happening in that part of the market. Now, Jim, you've talked about the industry in many aspects and a lot of these rules before. You've likened them to kind of a Rube Goldberg device. Um, what is that, first of all? And then secondly, if it is one and that's not a good thing, how do we unwind it? Yeah. Rube Goldberg was a cartoonist who was famous for drawing machines that did really simple things in really complex ways. So the idea of a Rube Goldberg machine is doing something very simple in a really complex way. And Private equity is all about creating efficiencies in businesses. But if you look at our own business structures, we are the most inefficient way of 
delivering our returns that I could almost imagine. So for example, if you look at TPG1 to TPG10, the number of side letters, pages, and our, our documents just get more, longer and more complicated. You, if you look at the back offices of private equity firms, they actually have no leverage because the way our structures work, we have literally thousands of entities we have to run in hundreds of jurisdictions. And so we have created a very complex way of doing a very simple thing, which is delivering differential returns. And somehow we need to crack that to open up the industry. So to simplify and make this Rube Goldberg machine more efficient, is that something that you think is needs to be done in piecemeal fashion? Or is there some type of first mover disruptor that can make something happen all at once to streamline the industry? I think there's a lot of people working on this problem. And it may be that a breakthrough will come from regulators who have been increasingly active in our industry. And one of the positives of that might be if they get comfortable with how the industry works, it's kind of inexcusable that investors around the world don't have access to what institutions around the world has, which is the long-term performance of private equity. And because they don't have access to the best, they often end up doing the worst in their own portfolios. So if there was a way to simplify in order to bring structural integrity, but also access, I think it would be a good thing from a policy point of view. And then there's a few things that people have to crack, like uh, daily pricing that I know AI specialists are working on today. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know when it's going to happen. But uh, I think it's a tablet that will be broken and, and we will find a move towards simplicity and it will be an unlock in industry size. You've talked about this move towards simplicity. And I like it when you said, you know, people need to get access to these returns. And I want to talk to you about returns in a few moments. But what do you make of the headlines that we see so much today predicting the decline of the private equity industry or its demise even? In the presentation I did for our um, LPs, I called this the uh, Mark Twain moment, hmm. where if you remember in the late 1890s, you know, Mark Twain was in London only to see headlines in New York papers that he was dying. And he reported back by telegraph, reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Hmm. Uh, I have seen reports of private equities death in 1989, in 1992, in 1998, in 2002, in 2000 nine in 2015. And so over and over again, people declare that there's too much money in the industry, um, interest rates are too high, et cetera. Somehow the industry keeps growing and it has more survival power than people think. And I'm not in no way dismissing a number of the issues. Like here's an issue. You know, I often get the question, boy, interest rates went up. Doesn't that kill your business? Well, what hurts your business is unexpected interest rates. Like if you underwrote in one environment and it's a new environment, we've been assuming higher interest rates in our underwriting for years because it couldn't stay at zero forever. That was obvious, right? But if you're underwriting today at assuming higher interest rates, it's part of your underwriting and it's assumed into the transactions you do. And in fact, if you go back in history, you and you and I looked at this data together, one of the greatest periods of underperformance in Private, there's no correlation between interest rates and private equity overperformance. There's no correlation. Right. And one of the greatest periods of overperformance was 
2002, right after a crisis, the tech crisis in this case, and at a time that interest rates were exactly where they are now. Right. Well, I, I think this idea of being always cautious about private equity, but also being thoughtful about why has it continued to prosper through other eras and might it continue to prosper today? And given the industry's incredible level of performance over the last 30 years, Jim, how do you think it can maintain that momentum? And do you think it still has room to grow? If you look at private equity generally, what's been happening is we've been gaining share in the global equity markets. So if you go back to about 1995, we were like one or 2% of the global equity market. So for all the hoopla, we're one or 2%. And today, after all of this growth, we're at 6%. With a better set of tools and better performance, it would make sense to me that we were at least 10. That's a substantial amount of growth. The second thing that will drive growth, and this is another thing people misunderstand, is you have to think about private equity in market-based nominal dollars. The private equity market, if it doesn't grow any share, should grow at the same rate as the stock market. So if you think the stock market is going to grow at 7%, there's an underlying growth in our business of 7%. You then go from 6% share to 10% share. And then the other potential area of growth for private equity is we are a dramatically unconsolidated industry. You and I have had this discussion. Mm -hmm. It's rare to see an industry mature like this and become less consolidated, which is what private equity has been doing. So for me, if you went from six to 10, if you grew at seven and a half percent a year, and if the top firms picked up five points of share from their currents, call it 30% share, you know, there's a very substantial growth engine for the next 10 years. Now, if we stop performing, if the public markets don't go up, all those numbers change, but the general share shift has been pretty constant and pretty steady over the last 30 years. And you mentioned consolidation, Jim. Do you think M&A has an important role to play in the consolidation of the private equity industry? I think it has a role. I'm struggling to say an important role. Uh, you know, we've, uh, we recently bought Angelo Gordon. It took us a year of really getting to know them, culturally getting involved. These are not like, you know, put these, slap these things together and, and get going or, or insurance, uh, roll-ups where you just leave people doing what they're doing. And you, you know, uh, so I, I think, um, I think there is a role to play, but I'm struggling to see a large role. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the market, it can be quite volatile. And there's a statistic out of Bloomberg recently, that 25% of private equity firms by number, not by capital, haven't raised a fund since 2015. Right. You know, if you haven't raised a fund since 2015, you are slowly dying. Yeah. So I think part of the consolidation is going to be um, a structural shift in the industry. Generally, the industry is going to a barbell structure, mm -hmm. which is a series of leading firms that will offer a, a series of products. And then at the other end of the barbell, some very excellent point products. But the firms in the middle, I think, have, have some real challenges. I totally agree. I mean, there's always room for innovation and this has always been an entrepreneurial industry. So we're going to continue to see interesting angles and smaller firms. And we're going to continue to see very large firms that also can innovate and have the resources to put themselves in any product in any geography where they can actually identify values. So that that barbell structure really, really resonates. Jim, let's talk a little bit about the industry's growth machine. What are the pistons of that growth machine? What drives the engine? 
Yeah, I, I talked about that that share shift, which is the core of it. But if you unpack it a little bit, you get very different analysis than if you just ask people. So for example, very little of the growth is explained by doing larger deals. In other words, the average size of private equity deals has grown absolutely in line with the market. So there has been no share shift in size. The second perception people have is, wow, these funds have gotten a lot bigger, but they forget to adjust it for their buying power. Mm -hmm. So we actually did analysis. We looked at uh, KKR's 89 fund was $6 billion, it was a massive fund. To have the same purchasing power today, KKR would have to have a $54 billion fund mm -hmm. because the market values have gone up and the leverage levels have gone down. They have a you know $20 billion fund. So in fact, they've massively lost purchasing power. So it's not deal size, it's not fund size. If you really get into it, it's a series of other things. First of all, it's increasing the aperture, doing more different types of deals. So the biggest growth in private equity has been in technology and healthcare, which were industries we didn't used to do. And the second thing that has driven growth is a geographical expansion. Private equity is one of the US's great exports. And if you look at it today, there's the number one city, I think, for private equity firms is Seoul, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? The number of firms in China across the world is staggering. So the industry has spread out to do more things in more geographies. And then a very subtle factor, when we started in the industry, the one thing you never did was buy from another sponsor. Private equity was a magic that only happened once. And if, if someone had bought a company and fixed it, no one was gonna do better with it. And in fact, it was a Bain study, I think in, what year was it here? Maybe 98 or 2000 that looked at That's right. sponsor to sponsor deals and found they did better because the management teams were used to operating in that environment, et cetera. So um, private equity used to be a way station where companies went and then they passed on to the public market or they passed on to a strategic sale. Now, as much as 60% of the, the deal flow is sponsor to sponsor. And so it's become a permanent home for companies and that's allowed it to grow. And that makes sense to me because you know, if you look at the other large market out there, real estate, real estate is like 90% in the private market and 10% in the public market. Mm -hmm. And corporate equities were always the opposite. Right. And so might it just be a better place to exist? So it's more things in more places and more sponsor to sponsor that really explains why private equity has been gaining market share. There's one more thing, by the way. So first of all, yep. add all those in. That's why you're gaining share. It's not one thing. It's because we have a number of pistons working and people have always underestimated how those work together. Mm -hmm. The piece I wanted to add to is the human capital element. Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that's really added to the industry is enormous talent. I mean, when we started, we were kind of like a backwater of, you know, a few people that had done some investment banking and, you know, we weren't trained. We just made this industry up. Today, we have, you know, people who are interning, starting in college. They're learning to model at levels that we never considered. They're trained in training programs. They go off to start their own firms. The human capital elements, the diversity we've added into the industry, the diversity of, of ideas and skill sets, the, the operating skills, it's just so much more than it was before, which allows us to grow in intelligent and really powerful ways. On the next episode of Dry Powder, Jim and I will talk about the remarkable staying power of the industry's top performing GPs 
and the volatility beneath the surface of the industry's history. I'm Hugh MacArthur. Thank you for listening.